Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back, as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us again, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in Japan. You may remember Ragnar from our Rules of the Game episode. Ragnar owns and runs the trolley stop in New Orleans. Why not stop by and try some pancakes? Ragnar also still conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by Tom. This week, we'll be jumping into 1931's crime mystery thriller, M, directed by Fritz Lang, also known for Metropolis and Fury. Other big movies in 1931 include Dracula, Frankenstein, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Tom, tell us a little about the plot of this movie and why you thought this would be a fun one for us to discuss today. So this movie takes place in the Weimar Republic, the seedy, crimey version of Berlin. And a child murderer, Hans Beckert, has on the loose. Uh, he's murdered a number of young children. And it's becoming quite a problem for both the police as well as the underworld. The police don't have a clue. They don't know what to do. And so they're just going into the criminal underworld, which is depicted as pretty robust in this film, and just arresting all the criminals. The criminals can't make any money because they're being arrested. And so they're furious as well. And so the criminal underworld comes together under the leadership of a person we only know as the safecracker to capture the the murderer, Beckert. Um, this is Fritz Lang's first sound picture, uh, and it's one of his masterpieces, along with Metropolis. And I'd seen this movie since I was a teenager um, and, and always loved it. And have, uh, upon re-watching it, have really, really enjoyed the kind of depiction of the city. And I'm excited to talk about it in this podcast, especially considering kind of some of the earlier stuff we did with expressionism and whatnot, and how much of an influence that kind of earlier work, like that Dr. Caligari work, really uh, shapes this movie and shapes the setting, especially that kind of horrifying, seedy, um, deceptive, shadowy Berlin that I think is really the star of this picture. What about you, KJ? I had not heard of this movie before it was suggested for Talking Pictures Trivia. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a great film. It felt like a blend between silent films and talkies, almost like an HD remake of a video game or something. It, it really felt like there might have been a silent film as when it started, and then he made it a talkie before ending it. Um, there was a few few scenes where there's actual silence, and it was... Uh, a little strange and some scenes felt like they were set up like a silent film but but all that to say it was great um i really enjoyed it i'm glad we got to watch it how about you nick i also thoroughly enjoyed this movie and interestingly i have a a, a vivid memory of watching this movie in high school uh which coincidentally is interesting that kj had not known about this movie so a little bit of a, a tangent here today 
But we were at KJ's house sometime in high school. I think we were in driving age. And we're all hanging out. Tom is there, and I'm there, and a few other friends. And KJ had plans that night. And his house, they had pretty much like an open door policy. So KJ's like, stay as long as you want. I got to go. No problem. So we decided to take advantage of this situation. And we said, we're going to stay. We're going to rent a movie. We're going to stay here. We're going to go get snacks. And, and we're, we're going to watch it. So Tom recommended M. I think we might have gotten the movie from the library. They had a whole bunch of collection of movies. Then we went to a convenience store and got popcorn and snacks. And we're all sitting there watching this movie M. And later in the evening, KJ walks in with a friend and looks at us, can't contemplate it, and just kind of disappears into the back. And we sit there and watch the movie until it is over. I actually did not remember much about the movie until I got to the end sequence that brought back some memories. But I do remember the night in which I watched uh, the movie M. And I'm looking forward to talking about it. I do have a vivid memory of coming home one night and you guys sitting in the living room with a black and white movie on that was obviously a foreign film with, 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 when you say snacks, it was lots of snacks. There was bowls and bags. It was stuff all over the place. Popcorn candy. Yeah, the whole nine <laughs> yards. The other, the other vivid picture I have of this is you guys were not sitting on the couches and the chairs. You guys had grabbed the kitchen table chairs because I think you had to sit so close to the TV to see the subtitles at the time that the TVs weren't quite as big as they are today. So it's the three of you sitting two feet from the TV, <laughs> full of snacks just on your laps, on the floor, everywhere, just chowing down. And yeah, that I didn't realize that this was this movie. That's pretty funny. It, that's the movie. <laughs> uh, now, Ragnar, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, any any uh, history with this movie? Any uh, initial thoughts? I don't really have a long history with this film. Uh, it was simply once I started getting into international cinema, thanks to Kurosawa and The Seven Samurai, uh, which is the film that really opened opened my mind. Uh, I just started searching what are good international movies, and M was pretty much at the top of the list. So I watched it pretty early on, and was completely blown away by the film, especially that. I mean legendary ending and i've been eager to rewatch it uh, so this was a great opportunity to jump back into them well we'll definitely have plenty of time to talk about it today now you're not uh, new to this uh, venue and this uh, presentation so of course i'm going to ask you again what do you think would be the best snack to enjoy uh, while watching m you know it's a tough one because the movie, it's a, it's a hard watch in terms of the content. You don't want to be having a great time while watching a kinder murder going around doing his thing. However, the movie does present what you should be eating during the movie. Uh, there is a scene where uh, I think it's one of the policemen has a giant plate of sausages just lined up and he's just chowing down and he has this I wouldn't say glass, I would, it's more like a goblet of beer. And he's just swigging that beer down, eating that sausage. So sausage and beer is the only thing you could be watching during M, I think. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's even the scene where they're at a, a, a butcher shop or something to that degree, and they have all the different bratwurst and all that yep. sitting up there. So I think that might be the menu you can select off of. <laughs> before exactly. exactly. I, I think that is actually a, a perfect fit for this one. There's really nowhere else you could go. It's time for Movie Quiz. 
All right, so here we are at round one. And in round one, we're gonna do things a little differently. We're going to do two questions, each worth one point. And then we're going to end on a gamble question where you can bet one or two points. If you win, you get those points, one or two. If you lose, they're subtracted from your score. However, you are required to participate. So you have to bet one or the other. Let's start with the categories, the first two categories. Here they are, Ragnar, I'll let you pick. And the categories are left behind and what's to be done. Left behind. It's time for question one. What are the two abandoned items that let us, the viewer, know that Elsie Beckman is dead? And you have to get both of them for the point. That question again. What are the two abandoned items that let us, the viewer, know that Elsie Beckman is dead? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? Uh, the first item we see, well, actually, I don't know the order, but the first item I remember is her balloon that you see floating away tragically without her owner anymore. And then the other one is her ball, which you see bouncing uh, in the park again without an owner. Uh, I also said ball and balloon. I said something that is a little, one of them is different. So I had the ball. But I also remember they had the um, wrapper, the confectionery wrapper that was left behind. All right. So the points are going to Ragnar and KJ. Yes, there is a confectionery wrapper, but that comes in that comes in a little later. We first learn, or it's implied that Beckman is dead when we see the ball roll down the hill and then the balloon that uh, Beckert had purchased for her caught in these wires, telegraph wires. The way long uses violence in this movie is very interesting and i think that that opening sequence is indicative of the way he treats violence and violent actions i think a lot of times what he does really well it's it's almost perceived violence like we know there's violence but in that opening sequence with the with the girl uh who unfortunately gets murdered we don't actually see the murder but you almost feel like you did yeah absolutely I think that is Lang's strength as a director. He understands that by not showing something that the audience has no choice but to fill that in with their imagination. And every viewer will fill that blank in with their worst nightmares. And so just by showing that ball rolling down the hill by itself, the balloon floating in the air, and then the emptiness of all the places where she could have been, including her own a chair where she would have dinner that night and all you hear is a mother's panicked cry that alone terrifies you and you have to fill in the rest what what is happening in that park what are we not seeing and i think that's why that scene is so powerful yeah i i agree the way he uses uh, effects to indicate things too both sound and shadow are are also a big part of it though i have to say the the it's if you describe it, it's corny, but in viewing, it's heartbreaking, which is what you mentioned, Ragnar, the, uh, the scenes where Elsie normally would go, but now without Elsie, um, ending with her, her dinner, and you just hear on the soundtrack her mother calling her name. But th that kind of use of sound 
it's used as a special effect, I think, in this movie and especially in the sequence. Because if you think like the, the first threat Elsie encounters isn't Beckert, it's the car. Right at one point she's going across the street and all you hear is a honking noise and then she steps back and the car goes through. And so the, the special effect lets you know, the, uh, the sound effect lets you know a threat is coming. And then, you know, Nick, you mentioned that it seems like we, we've seen Beckert, even though we don't, we actually kind of do. We see him in shadow, we see him from behind. And that, that great sequence when we first encounter him, he's a shadow, he's just black. Um, it's a poster of uh, a poster that says there's a 10,000 uh, mark, mark, right? Mark reward for the discovery of the murderer. And then um, Beckert's shadow falls upon that poster as he starts to talk to Beckman. And I think the, the use of sound, especially throughout this whole movie, acts as a special effect, the way we would treat, you know, um, kind of CGI in the 21st century. I was, uh, Tom, referring to we, we didn't actually see the murder, but we felt like we saw Oh, it. I'm sorry. Now, yeah. That's okay. Yeah, no. Um, but talking about sound, I completely agree with you. And we can't leave the conversation of, of sound without talking about the whistle. Okay. So that was like its own little embedded soundtrack of- is, like, This is his whistle, right? His whistle is very impactful because it's in, almost like an embedded soundtrack of dangerous coming. Like, you know how Jaws has donut, donut, the whistle has that same feel. And sometimes he, he's successful. And sometimes the girl's uh, mother who he's looking at comes and does, doesn't rescues her without even realizing she's rescuing her. So I thought that was also another really compelling sound in this film. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. I didn't think of that to Jaws, um, mm -hmm. that, but that's a really smart comparison. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and it does so much more work than, than a, you know, a demonstration yeah. of violence. The other thing that Whistle did uh, that happens a lot in other films is it, it kind of gave the character an overture. I don't know if overture is the right word or uh, a theme. So like in, yeah, in, uh, yeah theme. In, um, a light a light motif would be a light motif. We did bring <laughs> up light motifs in a previous. Episode. I actually long actually described it that way in an oh, interview. Okay, he did, he did. He actually use that term, yeah. light motif, kind of like Indiana Jones. Um, Indiana has his light motif. Marion has her light motif. Um, am I saying light motif wrong? Everybody's laughing at me. No, no, it's just it's oh, so no, pretentious I that. I <laughs> I just inserted <laughs> diegetic. Just for I also like the diegetic light motifs that yeah. I found in this. Uh, but it's, it's a German concept. Like the Germans came up with this. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> the Germans came up with a light thing. Light like motif. A... It's a Wagner came up with that for his operas. So he okay. would have like a little thing to, and other people ah. did it before, but Wagner was like, this is called this and we will do it this way, you know. <laughs> KJ, tell us more about the light motifs. <laughs> Sorry, you go what for I it. really liked about the light motifs. <laughs> um, well, and just to stop talking about light motifs for a second, in Kill Bill, there's a scene where uh, the lady's whistling down the hallway in the hospital. Was it the same song? Uh, we're not supposed to talk about the song. Never mind. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. We can talk about the song, just don't name it. Okay. In Kill <laughs> Bill, it was named. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so in Kill Bill, when I first saw Kill Bill, I, I didn't actually like that scene. I didn't think the whistling was creepy. I didn't think it worked, but I thought it worked really well in M. And I think if I had seen M before I saw Kill Bill, I would have appreciated the uh, reference to M. Yeah, the, the violence in Kill Bill is, is 
very manifest. It's on the surface and it's sort of the point, right? The point of Kill Bill is a, a celebration of that type of violence and a stylization of it. Uh, you know, M is really about the shadows. It's, it's about what we can see. Kill Bill is about celebrating what we have seen. You know, it's this kind of uh, B-roll celebration. I think the whistling in Kill Bill is more of a heavy motif. Speaking of the whistle in Kill Bill, uh, if my notes here are correct, uh, the whistle heard is uh, from something called Chill Bill from a 1968 British psychological thriller film called Twisted Nerve. So it is not the same, uh, but I do see how you were making the comparison. It's somewhat used in the same way, though, right? But yeah, but I do think like the the Jaws comparison for me is a little stronger simply because so much of what Spielberg, we could even say maybe learned from this picture, even though I don't. I don't officially know that, is what you don't show works better. And by indicating, by setting your imagination off by using a sound effect, he can capture that imagination. He can capture your fear more completely than if we, we just demonstrate it. And what I liked about it too was that it's actually in the movie. It's not soundtrack over the movie. It's called a diegetic sound. I was setting it up. I was setting it up. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I like to call it a diegetic light motif. Is my <laughs> no, no. Uh, KJ, I think it's brilliant. I do. <laughs> He's like the next Wagner. <laughs> That's what I think of when I think of KJ. Ricard Wagner. <laughs> 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 Next question, <Okay>. please. Yeah. <laughs> it's time for question two. In a famous sequence, two committees, one of law enforcement, the other of lawbreakers, meet to discuss what shall be done about the child murderer. What solution do the criminals come to? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right. Since Nick spoke first, Nick, what's your answer? They thought the only way to handle this situation was to take matters into their own hands. And then they enlisted uh, the beggars union to act as spies to see if they can track him down themselves and put him to justice in their way. Um, I had a, they used a network of beggars to find the murderer. I, I actually didn't realize they had unionized. They used the term <laughs> beggars union, which I thought was very funny. And that's why I remembered it. Those dudes are brutal. And Ragnar, what do you have? Uh, the same answer, except I didn't remember the beggars union part. Uh, basically, find him uh, through their own means and bring him to their kind of justice. All right. Thank you. And everyone gets it right. Excellent work, gentlemen. Uh, it is a, a beggars network. Um, and I, yeah, the the beggars union, which we see their union hall, don't we? Yeah, they have like their like their there's like a ledger where they're like writing down what territories they're gonna get. It, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that whole sequence that they were that mm -hmm. organized. Yeah, but even we see like the beggars before. So th when they're writing their names down, it's sort of like where the beggars are going to be in the city. But even before them, there's like there is a union hall for the beggars, where they, that's I think where they're selling the sandwiches, right? Yeah, they had a bunch of like um, scraps and gadgets and whatever they had cobbled yeah. together or found. Yeah, so it, it's a, you know, it's it's an interesting kind of criminal underworld. It's it's very 
bureaucratically friendly, which, you know, it's German, so of course it is. Um, but I, I was kind of interested, because I think the beggars are a, another great representative of what I'm calling the most important character, the Berlin. I think Berlin, the city itself, is whatever you call it, the dominant force in this picture. And I'm curious what people thought about the, the beggars and the, the underworld, the criminal underworld, which the beggars are kind of a part of, kind of not a part of, um, and how those two organizations function vis-a-vis -vis the city. I felt that, I thought it was very interesting that the beggars play a very important role in not just the plot, but I feel like the director's feeling towards the city of Berlin. Like, Tom, you were talking about how Berlin, it's almost the main character of the film. The director chooses to show basically the seedy underside of Berlin for the most part. So it's almost like he doesn't like it. But what's interesting is the beggars are the ones that find the killer. They're the ones that identify the killer, not the police and not the, the criminals. Uh, in fact, you see the, the police almost... Uh, making mistakes after mistake after mistake, going to the wrong places, harassing the wrong people, the, 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 the citizens of Berlin, they mob and then they pick out innocent people in the street and they gang up on them. So it was the lowest people of the, of the social ladder, so to speak, the beggars. They're the ones that, are the, that, you, that uh, organize the best and are able to identify him before anybody else. They are successful in their efforts as well. Just like, to your point, they actually get the job done. The one that you think have the, the least impact on society actually had the most impact on society. And I think Lang did a great job of showing you all the different people in society and their reaction to the murderer and how they can impact things. You had the police, you had the parents, you had the beggars, you had the, was it a mayor? Was the mayor the guy always calling the police, getting on their case? He was like the secretary. Secretary. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, there was a secretary. Okay, uh, the secretary down. And he was calling Loman, the right. chief of police yep. guy. Is that? Um, yeah. And you also had the kids. Their reaction to all this was kind of like innocence. And so to, to call Berlin the main character, I think makes a lot of sense because of how populated it was, how, how many different facets there were with all these different perspectives that kind of became its own character more so than any of these given groups. I, I really enjoyed the scene where it was the, it's like an old mafia movie where it's the meeting of the Dons or the, or the families or whatever. Now, in this case, they were different organizations within the organized crime syndicates, if you will. I think that's more of what they referred to. But even that setting is like, the blinds are open. Why do you have the blinds? Because there's a big secret mission. And just the fact that they decided it's disrupting their operations. So they need to take control of the situation. I just thought that whole element, and then they kind of go back and forth between uh, the, the police and the different organized and different people talking about how they can come up with the resolution. I really enjoyed that part of the movie. And then later when they actually are hunting him down, it's a very interesting dynamic where they're like, we need to break in here. We need to get the guy before the cops come in who are trying to also get the guy, but are going to handle it in a different situation. That, that whole sequence in that building between law enforcement, I think there may be one corrupt cop that is in cahoots with them. It's a very interesting dynamic. They didn't just say, hey, we're all in this together. It's like, no, we still have to hide in the shadows to get this murderer by our own means. Very interesting way that all played out. Yeah, I think they had lost faith in the 
the criminal justice system. And they talk about that later. They go, why are we going to turn him over to the police so that he can, what, be put in a hospital, taken care of, and then be released and we do this all over again? They said, no, 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 let's take matters into our own hands and we'll give him the justice that we feel that he deserves. It's just funny that the criminals lost faith in the criminal justice system. <laughs> yeah, there's a, a sort of honor between the, the criminals and the police up to the point of these murders. Because at once Safecracker, so for our audience who hasn't seen it, which might be everyone, uh, Safecracker is, is the main criminal. He's the, the sort of leader, his equivalent is probably um, the, the police inspector Lohman. Um, and he's the one who comes up with the idea to organize the beggars, and he's the one who leads the trial over the, the murderer, over Beckert. Um, and he at one point mentions that he doesn't like how the criminal underworld is being compared to this child murderer. These are, we have different things. And when I'm up against the police officers, like I die or they die, that's the job. That's the situation. That's sort of a, the, the social contract here. Um, it's almost like Berlin is so corrupt that the social contract isn't, you know, law and order, Burke or Rousseau or something like that. Um, the social contract is, you know, whoever can shoot first, you know, win, wins the battle that kind of social contract is being violated by Beckert and the, the chaos that ensues. Social contract is the perfect way to phrase this. There is a certain order, even within the disorderly part of society, that is maintained, and this puts a cog in the wheel of the machine. The, uh, the scene that you were talking about, Nick, the meeting of the dons, so to say, reminded me a lot of a scene in The Dark Knight when they when all the different crime syndicates get together and say, we have to catch the Batman. Um, but the scene worked a lot better in M than it did in The Dark Knight. But while I was watching M, I was like, is the, the murderer similar to Batman at all? Because there's these, these parallels. Um, but that's about as far as the thought got. I don't think he was very similar to Batman, even though the... <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to share this and then correct yeah. myself immediately. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Batman is a pedophile. Yeah, I don't remember that scene in The Dark Knight. No, but kids. the Joker might have been. Well, Joker would similar, do anything similar to M. Um, yeah. It just it was interesting that the the hero of The Dark Knight found himself in a similar situation, or the situation surrounding him was similar to this terrible person in M. Yeah, it's. I mean, the 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 difference though with The Dark Knight is what ends up hurting the criminals is that a law and order community has been restored in Gotham. So the, the Dark Knight, I think, and I think the, the, the whole trilogy is, is sort of a fundamentally conservative trilogy in the sense of, in like a Burkean sense, in the sense that what, to, to return to the social contract concept, um, the world of Gotham, um, its institutions need to function. They need to be hierarchical and you need a strong sense of law enforcement for them to function. And what Batman has done by adopting an icon or an iconography is allow that icon to stand in for the establishment of hierarchy and law and order in Gotham, right? So, so Gotham is a working community and the criminals who are in the dark, working in the shade have been pushed more into the margins of that that social system that's at work and the joker is you know and as he says an agent of chaos he's um he he's anarchy right he's lawlessness in this film in 
this film being M, I think the lawlessness is, it's there and it isn't there. Lawlessness in this case means that uh, almost everything is shade. Everything is margins, right? And so there's going to be these emergent orders that the syndicates place into the city, but you're not getting um, a city that sort of functions in the way Gotham functions at the beginning of that second Batman movie, right? Th this is a city that's desperately poor. You could tell th these people are not doing well. Um, it's a city in which kind of anybody could be the murderer, right? Like the, the Joker is an anonymous person, but he is um, he is pomp and circumstance up the wazoo, right? He is he is a demonstration. He is a performance. He is kind of an art form um, or thinks of himself in that way. Um, Beckert is anyone. He's anonymousness writ large. Um, and I think the danger of this type of Berlin is that Beckert can come out of anywhere, right? It can, it, it can be in anything. Um, it can be in anyone. I was thinking about this a little further as, as you guys were talking about this. And I do think, KJ, there could be a parallel between organized crime against a disruptor, but I think that's where it ends. Once we start getting into that person, and if anything, I actually would lean more when I was just trying to make that mold work. Joker is more of the disruptor within versus Batman, but it is organized crime against someone who's disrupting their system of rule and, and I don't want to say governing, but really running in society. So I do see that connection. Yeah, there's social contract. Social yeah. contract, exactly. Yeah, the Batman part, not so much. Joker, maybe, but the, the fact that they're, uh, they're being disrupted and working to figure out a solution on their own is similar. All right. Are we ready for our third question? Um, and I call this Place Your Bets. So how this works is I'm going to say the category, and then I want to hear your bets. You can bet one or two points. You have to bet. All right. Here's the category. Maestros. I have a question. Can you get negative points? You can. You can owe the bank. And the bank is me. And I will come for you. <laughs> I'd like to bet one point. One point for me. Also one point. I don't want Tom coming for me. All right, our bets are in. It's time for question three. What is the name of the composer and the name of the song that Peter Lorre's Beckert whistles when he approaches his pet prey? Now, I was originally going to have it, you have to name the composer and the song, but you can name either. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Ragnar, what do you have? Okay, so the composer obviously was probably some German guy, and the song is, uh, I have no clue. I also don't know the composer, and I don't know the song, but, well, all right, here's what I think the song's name is, and I don't know why. The King's Hall on High. You're, you're, you're somewhat close, but. All right, Nick, what do you have? Okay, it's in the Hall of the Mountain King. I don't know the composer. Okay, very good. It is In the Hall of the Mountain King from the opera Peer Gint by Edvard Grieg, who is Norse, not, not, he wasn't German. So I only know this though, because I was researching this movie. 
So I feel bad getting this one right. <laughs> That's okay. That's sort of the idea. So I'm I'm on the fence. Do I give KJ points? What do, what do we think, gang? <laughs> I'm saying no. No way. <laughs> okay. I got like a word. He said hall. <laughs> okay. Is there a king in there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, king, king's, king's hall. hall you know? Yeah. When you're walking around the king's, king's hall, landing. What do you hear? Uh, what did you guys think of Peter Laurie's performance um, and how it's used, how, how different elements of it come up throughout the, uh, throughout the piece? He was a good whistler. It wasn't his whistle. <laughs> I was just thinking. <laughs> he didn't know how to whistle. Really? Is that true? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I was actually thinking about that. I was like, if I was an actor and I had a role and they said, you need to whistle. I would not be able to do it. I can't. Oh yeah, no, I know that would be the, the end of me. <laughs> I would say I I you know really love. I'm a big Peter Lorre fan. Um, watching like him and Sydney Greenstreet and do a number of films they they've done throughout the years, it you know it is pretty great. Uh, but Peter Lorre has throughout his career kind of played the these outsidery people um, and sort of kind of sexual outsiders as well. You think of like Maltese Falcon. Have anybody seen that movie? In, in Maltese Falcon, it's a it's a hard boiled early nineteen forties uh, crime film, you know, detective film. Um, and Peter Lorre's character is, though they don't explicitly say this, clearly gay in the movie, and it's like um, sort of mocked, and you know, he's or ridiculed or even despised. He's sort of despised for it. Uh, and and throughout his career, he's he's played those type of people. These kind of sexual outsider people. I mean, Peter Lorre has one of the greatest faces in cinematic history. Right? He's the kind of actor that he's almost typecast because of his face. It, it looks weird uh, in, in a way that's very intriguing. So he uh, just almost has to play these villainous roles. Uh, I think he was doing comedic acting before um, M, and M really kind of set him up for a career of playing bad guys. And he was just absolutely amazing at it. And what I found interesting of his performance in M was that he played, he played a more human villain than in other films. And it's hard to say that about a child uh, killer, but what I mean by that, in other roles, he's just the bad guy and he just does bad things. In this role, he has to explain himself and dive deep into his character far deeper than in other pictures. So I think this is maybe his career performance. I also think he was uh, excellent in this film and he gives a lot of signals through his expressions. And there was a clear dichotomy too from when he was in charge, when he was untouchable, when he was on the prowl and when he was under the gun. It was interesting in the scene where they're chasing him down the organized crime. He almost looks like the victim. You almost think this is the victim, but really he's a horrible person who murdered and he's hiding in the shadow and he's fearing for his life. And you have to think, wait a minute, why am I even feeling any kind of emotion or sympathy for this person when he's a horrible child murderer? So that the ability to make you have that conflict and, and, and almost for a moment lose track of who's good and who's evil really shows how well he portrayed that role. Yeah, he is not the um, 
he's not the the stout strong villain of this era or, or eras later I, I really think there is a it's hard to call him an everyman because peter laurie is so physically distinctive his his dinner glass eyes are <laughs> the most the most famous but he is a short seemingly somewhat bourgeois uh kind of everyman outside of the you know his his distinct physical appearance he's he's a little chubby he's a little stout he's not someone you think of as particularly threatening um and I think that that's another kind of strength of this movie too is, and we've talked about this before, right? That the, that the kind of the darkness of the city can seem to pop up in these different, different bodies, these different unexpected ways. He reminds me of a Looney Tune character, not, not a Looney Tune character, but a specific Looney Tune character. I don't remember exactly which Looney Tune short he was in something with the, the guy with the hair. He's all made out of hair. Um, that was the, there was a guy all made out of hair and then there was a human guy and P Peter Laurie definitely reminded me of that Looney Tune character the opposite way around. I don't know whichever way it goes. It's possible that they made it based off of Peter Laurie because he was a pretty famous actor. In homage. <laughs> In homage. <laughs> homage to Laurie, yeah. You know, uh, Nick, we were talking about how for a moment you kind of lose yourself and feel sympathy for for that character and i think that's absolutely right i mean i'm thinking about when he's in one of those storage uh, sheds and it's just an, a, a very almost german expressionistic setup you know it's very extreme very extreme setup and you see his face and he's such a great actor that he has this terror in his face that when you see it as a human it's it's portrayed so well that it feels totally genuine and I think your first reaction as a human when you see someone in that state is immediate uh, sympathy. And um, so I think it, that, that face is what really confuses the audience. When we see him act most like an animal is when we have the most human compassion for him. When he's sort of trapped like a dog, we have the most sympathy. Um, and it's, it's a, I don't want to call it a trick, because I, you know, I don't, I don't think. Well, all film is manipulation, but I don't think Long is um, uh, uh, unjustly manipulating us at that point. I do think forcing us to recognize the the humanity at work in the evil is a, a great difficulty that we as audience members have to deal with. Absolutely, I think that's why this film is a masterpiece. Uh, why that that reason above all. I mean, how many, we've seen criminal films, they're crime films, there's decades worth of them, but very few uh, ask you not to necessarily like feel bad for him, but to understand that this person is a human and that there's something going on here. It's not just, uh, you know, and at, in the kangaroo court, you know, there, there is the people just saying, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's not a human, he's a beast. We have to extinguish him. But the film is saying, well, no, he, he is a human. Not that he's right, not that he's wrong, not that you should feel bad for him or anything, but he is a human. And very, very, very few films would ever do that of any criminal, especially a child killer. I don't think this film could be made today. And I'm shocked that it was made in the 30s. And I'm just, I'm glad that's, that he had the, the, the guts to do this. You reminded me of a, a moment in that kangaroo court where they're pretty much 
considering him guilty. And the person who's representing him says to one of the uh, gangsters, well, aren't you committed? Aren't you uh, committed for, for three murders yourself? <laughs> and it's like, in his mind, it's like, you could just hear the guy, well, they weren't children. <laughs> you know, they, they were part of the social contract or whatever. But I just, I thought that was a really interesting line. Yep. It, it, yeah. It's like, uh, he who without sin cast the first stone kind of situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it, the ending, that kind of bleeds into the ending, where what ends up happening is the, the criminals can't uh, execute Beckert. And because the cops get there, they had ca- caught one of the criminals earlier on. They know where Beckert is. They, they go and they catch Beckert. The film ends, and it's actually different in the French version of this. The film ends with the mothers of the dead children weeping, saying, what has this justice done for us? Um, you know, in the French version, it ends with just children playing and everything's happy. But the German version is distinctly pessimistic in the end. And there is a, a condemnation of the the institutions that are supposed to be governing us, which is makes sense for you know this period in in you know the the German Republic, which had completely fallen apart since since 1929 uh, and we see the, you know it's kind of an opening for a new type of german rule that that follows in its wake but um yeah th- this movie is is kind of poised between um the the new kind of authoritarian world that's coming and this past society that does not function um you know, and so we, we talk about the criminal social contract. I think the criminal social contract, while it exists, is kind of it kind of sucks for a lot of people. Um, it, it kind of sucks for those women who will not get justice as they feel it. You know, the, the criminals can try, and they did, uh, but there's something not working, even with these emergent orders popping up in the underworld. There's something not working here. Yeah, I, and I think the most telling part of the ending that speaks to what you were talking about is how at the very end, the, the, the criminal justice and the judges get together and they're about to read the verdict, but we don't hear the verdict. Instead, we hear the mothers crying and they say, what will this change? So we don't hear if he's found guilty or innocent or insane or anything. And why? Because it doesn't matter. He, he doesn't care what the authority, what the government is saying. It doesn't matter. At the end, he says, what happened to our children? We, we have to take care of our own children instead of relying on this government. And so it, it speaks to how the director felt about Germany at the time. There was definitely a lot to unpack in this movie. And we're going to have even more when we get back right after this quick commercial break. It's time for... Guess that song, Whistling Edition. I'll whistle a song, and you guess what it is. Here we go.
If you guessed Tiffany's, I think I'm alone now. You're right. And we're back. Tom, take it away. The points after round one are Nick is in the lead with two, and KJ and Ragnar are tied with one. Here we are at round two. Round two is going to be similar to round one. This time we have three questions, and then we will end on a gambling question. The points in round two will be two points each, and for our gambling round, it'll be two and four points. Here's our categories, and Ragnar, as our guest, you are free to pick them. CSI Berlin, Trials and Juries, and Getting It Right. Let's go with Trials and Jury. It's time for question four. What is Hans Beckert's defense in his staged trial? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ locked in first. KJ's going first. Uh, Beckert said he had to do it. There was something inside him that made him do it. He didn't have a choice. It was what he had to do. Um, he even compares that to the other criminals who he doesn't think they had to do their crime. They were just doing it for other reasons. But his crime, he had to do it. It, it, it was a part of him or something inside him. Very similar. Something inside him compels him to do it. He has no control over it, and it almost seems like a burden. He, present, he presents it as almost a burden on him. Thank you, Nick. And Ragnar, what do you have? Uh, because this is a competition, I'm going to try to uh, take this a little bit to the next level and say maybe those other two guys aren't quite seeing the full picture. I want this point, these points just for myself. I think <laughs> he has these voices like they say, he is compelled by these voices that are following him everywhere he goes. But the reason he does the crime is because that's the only thing that quiets those voices, that that is the only moment where he can find peace. And he has this scene where he kind of goes, his face just relaxes and his eyes roll up into the back of his, into his skull when he goes, ah, and that's when I find peace. So for that moment, that's the only time that he can find peace from the, these demons that are inside of him. So I think he does it to find peace. I hate to say this, Ragnar, but I think everybody's getting the points here. Um, while I appreciate Ragnar's competitive spirit, he literally says, I'm, com I'm compelled to do it, which makes, <laughs> which makes it very hard not to award points to KJ and Nick. <laughs> but I... I do think you know your your more in-depth description is appreciated and will be awarded with with two points all right very good yeah so i we kind of talked about this a lot in in the last question um but this yeah this seems to be his his moment of humanity is when he is driven and he could say um i have to do this there's something in me compelling me to do this you guys don't you know you, you choose to do this. Well, I, I think this might be interesting to just discuss our personal opinions because the movie ends in an ambiguous state if we feel he's compelled or is he just making excuses. Now, I actually think that he might just be making excuses to them, begging for his life because he is backed into a corner and he is also trying acting as a survivor. And that's the only way I think he thinks... I think that he thinks that he can get out of 
the situation he's in. So I don't know if he's just putting on a great performance, just like the actor who portrays him, or if he, he really has some kind of clinical issue where he's being compelled to kill these uh, children. So I, I suppose there would be what other evidence of the, is there of him, um, the real him, if we can use that term, um, wanting to do this, or if he's kind of forced to in spite of himself. Does anybody remember, is he discovered via the records of the mental institutions? Not to my knowledge. I don't remember them yeah. finding anything on, on him in there. We see a call, we see Loman, Inspector Loman, the head of the police, get a collection of files of people who are in mental institutions. Shortly after that, we see one inspector go to his home. Beckert is out. They, they don't get to interview him. But I was unsure whether or not Beckert was formally in a mental institution or not, based upon how those how that scene is cut with the following scene. That is true. I I I I didn't connect those dots. How did they know where to look for Beckert? That's what I thought. I thought he had been institutionalized before and they were just going off to visit. Right. And for our audience who who hasn't seen this picture, um, they go to his home, they collect some clues. Initially they sort of dismiss him and then they later think through those clues and go back. Sorry, I'm I'm just I'm trying to remember correctly. KJ, you said how did they know to look for him there? What do you mean by that? Look for him where? There's a lot of talk of oh, look for wooden tables because of the oh, handwriting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But Sorry. so they found the wooden table, but why do they look in that apartment for the wooden table? So yeah, Tom, I, I think you might be right. Maybe they did find evidence of him at a at a mental institute, and that's why they were in that apartment. Maybe they searched a bunch of different ones, and that's the one we happened to see. So that may change my opinion. I'm looking this up, and Tom is correct that they did check records of recently released psychiatric patients focusing on any with a history of violence against children. So that's a little bit more on the nose. And I kind of missed that gap when I was watching it. I still don't know if that end sequence is a legitimate mental issue or him doing whatever he can to get out of the situation. I, I really don't know. And I'm going to stick with my original opinion because I don't see any other evidence aside from this. But again, when you back a, a, a dog into a corner, he's going to fight. And this is the only way this guy knows how to fight because he, as we mentioned, his short, stout structure is that that's not how he survives is physical. So he has to go with the emotional and the mental uh, strain to try to get out of there. But you did connect something, Tom, that I, I somehow also missed. Yeah, I was going to say there is there is a lot of discussion in this film about um, the psychological makeup of people. And there's this, this sort of uh, uh, indirect Freudianism going on here where they're, they're talking to different professionals about uh, what this what type of person this may be. And I think the indication of psychological illness, I, you know, I, I think that hides more than it reveals. I think the, the fact that we have a psyche, which I, I think the film is taking the position that we have somewhat limited control over, right? That the, the repressed has this kind of, um, this kind of governing aspect to, to who we are. Uh, I, I think that, um, 
that a recognition of the the psychology of a killer um, is part of the the great mystery of of the film. You know, just as the the underworld is this buried aspect of the city, the causal agent to why this person does what he does, murdering children, is also kind of underneath. It's pushed down. It's unknown, um, and it's unknowable. Things get very interesting if you do believe him. Let's say for the sake of argument that he is telling the truth. He cannot help himself. Now the question is, what do you as a viewer or, or Nick, since you were talking about this, what do you think should happen? Who is right here? We, we know that the criminals have a point that he's gonna be put into a mental institution just like he was before, and he's gonna get out and do it again. Should they kill him there? Should he be put into the justice system to rinse and repeat the cycle? What is the, what is the right thing to do? That's why that's the, the tough question the movie asks, I think. Well, I'll tell you, that's a heavy burden right there. I'm taking all of Berlin's justice on my shoulders here if I discuss that. Uh, I'm going to tell you what I think they may have done during that period of time in 1931 in Berlin. I think he may have been executed, um, but that's just taking history to follow into account. Um, I will not make my personal sense because I don't know. I actually don't have a, I don't have the solution. I, I am the audience at the end of this movie where I do not know. But if I had an inkling, I think he might have been uh, executed uh, at that time. That's just my, my gut. Peter Lorre based his character off a real serial killer working in Dusseldorf or who killed and, and raped children. And, and that person was executed. I think he was, he was guillotined actually. Um, the Vampire of Dusseldorf, if you want to you look it up. Uh, so, like, literally, he would have been executed, probably. Right? This is around the same time. Um, but, but I think your question remains, Ragnar, which is, and it's also the question that links to the women at the end of the picture, which is, is more like, what is justice? Because if he's driven to do these things, if we take him at his word, it is he less guilty? Um, maybe he's less guilty. Is he entirely innocent? That seems harder to say. And then you have a consequentialist problem, right? Like if if it's just rinse, recycle, and he's going to do it again because he has to, right? He's he's compelled to. Um, then what ends up happening is that the justice system doesn't, it's unable to deal with people like this. So he's going to go off and do it again. And from a consequentialist standpoint, it, probably should kill him because it's him or children uh, you know so it's it's a um it's another black eye in the system that this this movie is is displaying and you know we know from fritz lang's other movies he likes to kind of condemn systems you know think of like metropolis or something which is entirely you know this kind of like marxist fever dream a little bit a, a brilliant one but still a marxist fever dream uh yet yeah, it's still a, a condemnation of that system. And I think this movie does it in subtler, smarter ways because it doesn't have a smash the machine answer. It can't give you that. And that, that's why the film endures because there is no answer. That's the thing, there is no right answer. And that's why the, the film has lasted so long. All right, are we ready for our next question? Right now, Nick is in the lead, so Nick gets to pick. Okay, well, in a very dramatic way, Imagine me having aviator sunglasses and taking them off. 
very dramatically. I'm going to pick CSI Berlin. It's time for question five. When the police investigate Hans Beckert's home, they find clues that help identify Beckert as the killer. Name two of those clues. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. All right, KJ answered first and with great verve. So KJ, what is your answer? Uh, I have the wooden table. Um, again, they, I think from the handwriting, they could tell it was on a wooden table because of the, the way it was written. And then I thought they mentioned red ink. I thought, I don't know if the letter was written in red ink or, but I think they found splotches of red ink and that was another clue to, uh, to identifying the murderer. Yeah, I have uh, the same answer. Uh, uh, a wooden surface, because I think it was maybe a windowsill that he uh, wrote on, and uh, red ink. That was just, you know, I think the, the color of the letter that they received, and so they were looking for red ink. Nick, what do you have? Okay, I agree with everyone on the red ink. It was specifically written on the wooden windowsill because the first time they came there, he looked at the wooden table, which did not reflect any kind of writing um, that had been taken place on it. And upon further inspection, it was the wooden windowsill that one of the policemen had the epiphany on and went back. And that's when they found it. All right, very nice. I'm on a bind here because it was red pencil shavings not red ink. So do I give everyone a point or no one? Oh, Ragnar wrote red pencil. Look at that. Red yeah. pencil. Oh, Ragnar. <laughs> but he, he didn't say the but windowsill. I, I, I did yeah, say Ragnar the windowsill. Did. He did oh. say the windowsill, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, Ragnar, you beautiful. You're <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think yeah, Ragnar is getting two. Um, oh, I hate to be a stickler about this, but I think it's just more fun. Nick, you've got the windowsill, so I'll give you one. And KJ, you said the table and red ink. <laughs> so zero points. <laughs> All right. So let's... I knew it was red pencil shavings, too. I don't know. I, I think it was because of he said ink. Oh. So let's see. We have then five. Nick gets an extra point. So Nick is at uh, also five. And KJ's at three so far. Okay, uh, very good. So this kind of brings up the the police for me, and uh, you know how they're represented, and especially Herr uh, Inspector Lohmann. Um, a lot of the, the the critical literature on this, not to go too deep into this, because I know, you know, I'm probably <laughs> the, the only one who's, who's read some of it. Um, but people like Dana Stevens, who is a, a critic who worked a lot in this movie before she i think she now works for oh god vox or something like that she's the film reviewer there she worked on this and then also um there was another critic whose book i read this week on this was um uh sam digan i i might be saying that wrong both of them see the police as authoritarians and the, the way the police are working as kind of authoritarians and uh, preludes to the Nazi takeover of uh, the Reichstag and, and all this stuff. I personally don't see that. I would agree with you. I don't see them as authoritarian. I, I personally agree with you. I don't see them as authoritarian. Um, in fact, there is almost a bit of compassion in there 
uh, at one scene where the police chief lays out basically the impossibility of finding this killer and everything that uh, everyone has to do uh, to catch this guy and you know, all the different uh, witness testimonies that conflict each other, all the different possibilities of the path. And it's just an impossible task. And you see these police officers and detectives working around the clock nonstop. And they're doing it because they're trying to find a child killer because that is wrong and they're trying to stop it. As opposed to the killers, I'm sorry, not the killers, the, the, the criminals that ultimately do find him, they're doing it because they, he's making them look bad and the heat is coming up and they can't get their job. So they're not doing it out of a, you know, it's the right thing to do. The police are doing that. So authoritarian and prelude to the Nazi party, I don't see that personally. I would agree with you. I see it more as they represent the system or the machine and they're very bureaucratic, which is why they're having trouble solving this case based on whether, but I do not. And on the other extreme, I don't think they're also incompetent. They're, they're diligently trying to work this with the tools that they have at their disposal. I don't see any greater authoritarian, you know, themes here. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I find, I found the, the kind of articles I was reading in preparation for, for hosting this week to be really bizarre. I mean, most of like the like critics are like really focused on the Nazis, you know, that are still like two years away from really, you know, taking over. Um, this movie to me seems so much like a like a Weimar Republic movie, like this kind of um, decadent world that was working for a few years that had enough money for a few years uh, collapse. You know, because you know, like the Weimar Republic essentially collapses economically speaking in 1929 with you know the the fall of the stock market, and you know the the poverty here and the way things don't work. Um, I think my favorite example of poverty in this movie is when the beggars are following, and one beggar throws away a cigarette, and the beggar runs over and picks it up and smokes it. Um, the movie is like filled with those details of of want. Um, and it seems like so much is, I don't want to say chaotic, so much is unordered or ordered in independent systems. Well, that makes sense because, I mean, Germany's economy in the 1920s was devastated after World War I. And I think that some of these articles might be taking a lens using future like knowledge that we have and bringing it back on that, where I think everything that we see within the movie shows more of the destitute and devastation of what the country was going through at that time. Yeah, and it's interesting because it, it was devastated from like 1919 to 1924, and you have the Dawes plan come in, which is basically a way of getting floating Germans loans so they had enough money. And what you end up getting is, you know, not only kind of American capital coming in, but American culture coming in. And so you have like jazz and um, and uh, flapper girls and whatnot. And, you know, like the Berlin underground becomes, you know, like a real fun nightlife. Um, and it seems like what we're seeing in this movie, it, you know, the Dawes plan falls apart after the stock market crashes, right? We just don't have money to fund Germany anymore. Um, and it seems like what we're seeing in this movie is the the remnants of a nightlife that used to be kind of glowing and exciting and dangerous, uh, dangerous in that kind of safe way that, you know, when you go to like a club or something, it's quote unquote dangerous. Um, but what we have here is uh, 
you know, instead of flapper girls, we see a lot of prostitutes, right? Um, instead of like uh, band members, we see swells and and gangsters. You know what I mean? Um, you know, jazz is not here. We don't. I don't think we hear any music in the movie at all. There may um, be one scene with the beggars. There's a music box or music machine. Yeah, but, mm -hmm. but that that is the version, as you're saying, not the jazz band, but yeah, the you know lower dregs of society trying yeah. to bring some mm -hmm. of that or keep some of it alive. Yeah. Which, you know, I, I, I felt the fact that like a lot of these critics, like really good critics were missing. This was kind of, was really surprising. Yeah. I think they, like you said, looking back, when we think of the Nazis, we think of the Holocaust and the end part of the Nazi party. Um, and it, it wasn't just that from the beginning, you know, kind of like, started off lukewarm and then got to boiling temperature. So this is kind of early in the 30s, you know? So I don't think the the depth and the evils of the Nazi party were quite known to everyone at this point. It was just kind of starting to really warm up. Um, and also, I think the director, Fritz Lang, had trouble um, getting this movie made at the beginning because the Nazis did think it was about them, but he assured them it was not. Yeah, they, they didn't necessarily have power at at this time, but the head of the studio was um, was either sympathetic or an actual member of the Nazi party. Um, I, I don't remember which. And, you know, he had to kind of assure them it's it's not about them. And and you know, from my from my vantage point, it is not. <laughs> you know, this is this is not touching on that. Uh, especially since he conceived it in I think 1930. Um, but yeah, and I think it's like the the lack of definition in this world. The kind of it, it feels like mist, like mist with buildings that can you know that evil can come out and grab you and pull you away. That seems to me what this world is. It's not the kind of totalitarian, romantic Nazi image. Um, that doesn't seem to be the threat. Are we ready for the final question of this round? Let's do it. All right. The question is from category getting it right. It's time for question six. What was the conflict in testimony 1478 of the Beckman murder case. Locked in. Locked in? Locked in? I love the question marks on all of your guys' answers. <laughs> but Rag except Ragnar. Ragnar is confident, prepared, ah. and damn handsome, if I don't say so myself. Yeah. So, sir. Fake it till you make it. <laughs> exactly. What do you have, sir? You know, I thought about this one a lot. This is for the win, possibly. Okay, so uh, the conflict was the color of the little girl's tat. Uh, there were two witnesses and they each thought it was a different color. Uh, and the conflict was whether he was a murderer or not. <laughs> okay, thank you, KJ. Yeah. <laughs> and Nick, what do you have? The conflict was there was a wrapper from some kind of confectionery and they couldn't find what store the sweets originated from. Thank you, KJ. And the two I'm points. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. We've known each other how long? 
<laughs> Pre-K. Yeah, so it's literally 30 years. <laughs> More. More. <laughs> so, thank you, whoever you are. You, uh, you, hey, you. You, you over there. <laughs> so the point... <laughs> The points go to Ragnar. The conflict was whether or not she has a red or green hat. Root, grun, root, grun. All right, and so this kind of brings up a topic of the, the element that we haven't really talked about very much, which is the mob and how the mob um, acts and how the mob digests and knows. So it seems in part, um, obvious that the the mob that's uh responding to the the beckman murder case and the other cases is responding kind of entirely in fear and are taking on a sort of um i don't want to say totalitarian but a sort of wild form of justice right they, they are willing to grab punch attack anyone who seems even the remotest bit suspicious um, you know, the, the, my favorite was the, the little old man who gave the girl the time and then a, a giant like barrel chested German walks over and starts chastising him and then grabs him. And almost immediately he is surrounded by a bunch of people who are like, take him to the police. No, punch him in the face. <laughs> you know, and, uh, <laughs> it's the you perfect know. solution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there was another scene too, where a gentleman looked like he was walking his daughter to school. And everyone was like suspicious because he was walking with the, the little girl. When, mm. when you first brought up this question, I, I was a little confused because when you said mob, I was thinking mafia, mafiosa, gangsters, not the mob rule of the people who are unorganized on the streets. And that is interesting to see how quickly they went with this distrust and everyone's guilty. Uh, it, it, I think that actually would be quite relevant to what would happen during that time. They didn't have the same information. I mean, even look when their murder's there, everyone's getting a newspaper. I mean, they're running through the streets to get the newspaper to see what is going on. So I think with any kind of suspicious events going on, you could have mob rule uh, take over quicker than you think if there isn't some kind of um, way to call the mob. Yeah, I mean, it was citywide mob mentality. Um, there was one scene where a, a cop was arresting a pickpocket and the pickpocket said, well, you can, you can find me, you can arrest me, but you can't find the killer. And that's all he said. And then suddenly everyone's like, wait, someone said a killer. Hey, that's the killer. Hey, everybody, let's get him. He's the monster. You know? So people are just ready to erupt at a moment at a drop of a hat. And, uh, I think that's absolutely what happens. And it, it's not just a 19... 30 thing. We've seen that uh, in, in many countries, including the United States, uh, when serial killers are running rampant in a, in a community and suddenly everybody locks their doors, buys guns and points fingers. And not to get political at all, but it, it doesn't have to just be a murder. I mean, it could be any kind of yeah, thing yeah. that is perceived as injustice or something that people don't agree with. Uh, there is that mentality. And Tom, that's kind of part of that mist you were talking about before, too. At the beginning, the mist is the murderer. But eventually, ev since everybody's kind of part of that mob, you don't know who's going to get upset because you looked the wrong way or looked the right way. And it just comes out and gets you. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. I would say that groups um, 
group, you know, the, the way a group thinks in this movie um, seems to be contrasted to individuals. And I, I haven't worked this out, I'm not sure, but it seems like the police are most effective when you were looking at Inspector Lumen and what he's doing, as opposed to them sitting around a table. Um, it seems most effective the criminals when they're listening to Safecracker and he's kind of dictating, you know, instructions, what we should do, right? When he calls the syndicate together. Um, and it seems that whenever we're kind of expanding out and seeing what does the group think or how can the group uh, contribute, it, it seems to kind of dissolve into chaos. Um, but I'm not sure. Do, do, do people agree with that or is that, or am I a little off there? There is more structure whenever you see Loman. I'll, I'll say that much. It's almost like you're looking through a different window on events that are going on. It, and the rest of it has its own vibe. But he does have, as I said early on, I don't think he, I don't think him, he or the police force are incompetent anyway. They're trying. It's just, it's not working with the tools they have. I, I know I'm repeating myself. <laughs> Okay, here we are at our final question. The totals are Ragnar at seven, Nick at five, and KJ trailing behind at three. Now in our final question, it's another bet. You can bet either two or four points, but you must bet, all right? And I will give you the category before you come up with your bets. The category is quiet on the set. I'm going four. This is a golden opportunity for me to come back here or make history ending with negative points on talking. This is a win-win. I'm going for Tom's coming after you. Can we, can we do the, the points again? I'm sorry. I, I just need to hear them out. I had seven, five, three. seven, five, three. So you have seven. Nick has five. The other KJ. Great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So both KJs are okay. <laughs> Behind you. <laughs> I am going to wager four points. Ooh. Uh, first of all, yellow, so four. Oh, there we go. Four. Oh, <laughs> everybody's getting four. So the entire, much like that television show whose name we can't mention due to copyright, everything is on the line in the final question. All in. All in. All right, gentlemen. It's time for a bonus question. During the filming of M, what allegedly occurred over two dozen times that typically doesn't happen on film sets? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. I want to go last. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, Ragnar, what do you have? Uh, well, it's very unique to this movie, uh, but a lot of the extras were arrested. Okay, thank you, Ragnar. KJ, what do you have? One of the big things in this movie was the whistling. Um, the main character would whistle, and then you knew he was there. And that whistle was was infectious. It, it just would get inside your head. And, and oftentimes, the other crew members would just start start whistling with him. And um, you know, and that was fine in the silent film era. I mean, maybe people used to whistle all the time. We wouldn't know. It wouldn't come up in in these in the stories. But here, it would then end up on the film and they'd have to reshoot so i believe it was at least 12 times everybody just started whistling and then they realized ah we got to reshoot the scene because of the whistle thank you kevin very nice and nick what do you have this movie there was a lot of disparity between light and dark 
and things were in dark and dreary settings and you needed the lighting to be just right. So I think it required a lot of lighting uh, and they were going through a lot of light bulbs. I mean, they just couldn't get the shots correct. So it was, I mean, it was, it was over a dozen of them happened, you know? So I think it was the lighting and the light bulbs. By over a dozen, you mean light bulbs breaking? Yeah. I mean, they, oh. they, they burnt out. They didn't get the right shot. They, they needed more light. All right. Awesome. Um, and the answer is arrests. Over two dozen arrests were made as Fritz Lang hired actual criminals to be the extras. We can see a lot of these in the, the trial scene in the basement. Um, a lot of those people were actual members of the, the criminal underworld of Berlin um, who sat in. And so that brings us, let's see here, Ragnar with 11, Nick with one, and KJ setting another record with negative one. <laughs> Congratulations, KJ. Oh, yeah. Congratulations, K Yes. Yeah. Well, other people have won talking pictures trivia, and honestly, we're a little over it. No one has ever hit negative points. And so the real victor today is KJ. Does that carry over? Do I start at a... Uh... <laughs> no. <laughs> Tom said he's coming for you. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to pay me back in a different way. <laughs> okay, uh, Tom, this was a, another week of great questions. Ragnar, again, congratulations on taking down the victory here. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be back with any last thoughts about this wonderful film. You are well-dressed smooth, eclectically red and refined stud muffin. No one can beat you in a conference room, on the golf course, in a judo studio, at Thursday night trivia at Mike's Pub and Grill, in Sunday morning choir, or Sunday afternoon brunch, or Sunday night handsome contests, in a Russian-style chess boxing match, hang gliding air guitar contest, golden retriever breeding, or even in a Chilean beauty pageant. You are the cat's meow, sir, and damn, do you know it. So when your son is admitted into Harvard, Yale, Princeton at age 11, after scoring a 1600 on his SAT and passing the 500-pound mark on his bench press, you know it's time to get him the gift that any man and future fashion icon must have, the screaming lapel pin. Be it set in a beautiful mahogany or polished walrus tooth, the screaming lapel pin not only looks like a million dollars, it sounds like a billion. With over 36 distinct animal and fungi noises, the screaming lapel pin has enough variety to help future world leaders and Fabio lookalikes express their inner animal. Our brands include... The disgruntled Goliath bird-eating tarantula. <laughs> the autochthonous protopod larvae. <laughs> the zippy-tasseled wobegong. <laughs> the intoxicated eastern gray squirrel. <laughs> And of course, our brand new item, Lionel the Duck. With an array of brand new screaming lapel pins, 
your 11-year-old superhuman can finally conquer the world. Maybe a few ladies' hearts. Thank you, Screaming Lapel Pins. Screaming Lapel Pins. Ah! And we're back. It's time for Movie Rants. Oh, so I could start with something. This is... um from an essay that Fritz Long wrote in 1931 titled My Film M, A Factual Report. Um, and he said the film M was based on factual reports to point a finger at the constant danger among us of having a society of violent individuals. Um, German cinema was based on isolation and he thought of this one as being very different because it was about the social space. Um, and how, you know, the violent and the idea of being in a society of violent individuals, how that shapes the social space. I was wondering what people thought of that paraphrase of, of that essay. That seems contrary to remember you were asking earlier about the movie critics and how they were saying that was a depiction. And that is from his tongue, actually. That's actually his words saying something to the contrary. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. But um, yeah, his his. His ideas, yeah, um, but the the film seems and like a lot of Lang's work seem to be interested in in kind of the social space and how the social space is shaped. Uh, however, when I I watch this movie, I still think uh, it, it's about um, it's about the the individual kind of popping out of the social space or popping out of the fog and how the individual kind of fights or clashes with the fog or the, the city of fog, you know, whatever, however, whatever metaphor you want to squeeze in there. Um, and I, I was wondering what people thought about, you know, like the individual in the social space. So in this movie, I guess the individual would be the murderer because everybody else felt like they were part of another group. And we're not necessarily individuals. Am I reading you right? Yeah, I I, I think that's true. I, I would say though that even within groups, we see the the most competence coming from, and I said this before, the most competence coming from individuals. We don't see like the police commission come up with a good idea. We see Loman kind of figure it out. Um, you know, we we don't see necessarily the syndicate come up with a good idea, you know, we see a safe cracker, the head of the syndicates, kind of coming up with a, this beggar thing. There's, there's these individuals that pop out. Um, and this is where I'm, I'm mostly not sure, because I'm, I'm still trying to negotiate how Berlin affects people. Um, I think we all sort of agree that it's almost entirely negative, right? <laughs> that, uh, you know, that, that there's just no justice here. Nothing really works here. Everybody's poor. Um, you know, your, your children are going to get killed and no justice is going to be served. Um, yet there seems to be moments for competent individuals to do things, to have some kind of agency here. And that was kind of my reading of this movie. Um, however, who's also very competent is Becker. <laughs> he's, you know, he's pretty good at killing children and getting away with it. Um, you know, he, he leaves an entire police department um you know with ripping their hair out because they have no clues whatsoever or very few clues anyway um and so it, it seems to me that the the uh it might be this might be a reading is that the individual in this space um 
if they, you know, can become kind of monstrous, that the competent individual, because of this world, can be made monstrous. And I don't know if that's a right reading or not. Well, Loman certainly does shine, but is it because of all the structure around him? Mm -hmm. So is the group still required for the individual to stand on their shoulders and, and shine? And, and I, I don't think the movie necessarily tells us either way, but I, I, I don't know that Loman would have been able to crack the case if he didn't have a police force behind him. KJ, I, I agree with you about that. You know, I was thinking about, clearly this movie is about, there's a lot of social commentary, but there's also a lot of individuals in this film. And how do they play together? I think is if you look at the individuals, they each represent one of the groups portrayed in the movie. There are not two cops. There's one cop. There's that one beggar that finds him. There, even in, even in the a, a room full of um, thieves and criminals, it's the safe cracker. And these are the individuals that shine the most. And they, so they're individuals, but at the same time, they're representing their organization, so to speak. Um, so I think that's how the movie balances an individual in the social tapestry. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that they're, they're sort of representative of a group. Um, and it might just be, you know, the necessity of, of telling a story, right, is, you know, uh, like a, a mob, just you, you can't just have mobs running into each right. other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, another quote I wanted to put forward, uh, does anybody have anything else to say on that? Okay. Another quote I want to put forward, this is uh, Dana Stevens, who I mentioned before, and this is an actual quote, and, and I really like this. I, I was curious what people thought of this. Um, quote, the police are control itself, inhabiting a strange netherworld that is both above and below the law, never congruent with it. Power, violence, and terror come from above and from below, until the end, above meets below, crushing everything in between. So I would say I agree with part of this quote um and i i disagree with part of this quote i i think the idea of the police as control itself right i i think that to me is is completely wrong you know i think the police are, are shown not to have a lot of control in this situation um and they have to have a, like a pretense of control right they have to raid everyone in order to look like they have control even though they don't. Um, what I, I like, though, about it is this idea of above and below crushing things. This sort of this notion of the city. We've been calling it the fog, or I, I've been calling it the fog, um, but also as kind of a, a vice that, or a crushing machine, I guess, whatever uh, that that pushes everything together and and crushes everything in between. Um, that part I liked about it, and I also like the idea of. The, the city has a strange netherworld. I think it's a really good description of it. You know, I, I find it interesting in, in this quote and in some of the other ones we talk about how people are almost convinced that this is a condemnation in a way of the police. Because uh, I think the police play a different role in this film than just like they're trying to control uh, the people. Be, you know, I think he's saying, and then I kind of agree with it, when left to our own devices, the, us people, we do break out into mob mentality. And when we, I'm gonna say we, as if I was one of those Berlin, people from Berlin that captured that old man that was clearly innocent. And we were saying, let's beat him up, let's, let's punch him in the face. And then that's the mob mentality. So when the structure comes in, they say, well, let's go get, let's go get an officer. 
So I think the police have not necessarily control as in they're controlling, but they help make us feel comfortable and, and feel like someone's in control of this chaos. Um, and I think that's the part they played. And yeah, you know, they do raid uh, uh, a bar without, without real, you know, uh, evidence that the killer's in there. But in the end, weren't they right? I mean, didn't we see a table full of knives and guns I mean, to excess? I mean, so I just don't see the police being as controlling in this film. Yeah, and, and that's that to me is kind of what's more interesting is what isn't controlled or this kind of world as as lacking control, right? And, you know, that's that's kind of, we talk about, you know, German expressionism as we, we have on this podcast before, you know, the sort of the, the nightmare of the mind put on screen, made in reality. Um, you know, often it's, uh, it's also the source of film noir. So it's often very like urban, um, it, it's very stark, it's kind of geometrically impossible. Uh, this seems to be much lighter than that. You know, this is not a, this is not, a, we never see anything impossible on screen, right? This is all um, architecturally sound, so to speak. Um, however, it does have this sort of, um, this sort of return of the repressed element to it. This part of the psyche that isn't control, that, um, that is responding or fighting back against control, maybe, even though I don't think we ever, we ever see that control. And it, it seems like, like this world, this Berlin, is the, the sort of the return of the repressed, you know, embodied in um, the mob or especially in Becker. And, you know, the, the, where he's, uh, he is kind of sexual repression um, writ large, right? You know, it's, it's the worst aspects of sexual repression, taking over the body and, and driving it into, into whatever activities, you know, Becker's responsible for. Um, but yeah, that, that would be my reading. It's, it's kind of like the opposite of control. It's the, uh, it's the inability of control to actually work. It's what I think of earlier. I mentioned it, bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. yeah. Nothing gets done. It's just we have systems in place and the illusion of getting things done, but we can't actually get to the resolution. Yeah, it's it's Freudianizing bureaucracy. That's yeah, that's really good. That's what bureaucracy is, right? Systems that don't get things done, <laughs> right? Complicated systems that don't do anything um, or don't do them well. Yeah, that's great. I like that. Yeah, I think one of the the best things about watching older films um, is being able to travel back in time and just see how people lived. And that's, I think M is very effective in that capacity because the main character is essentially the city. So Lang spends quite a bit of time just showing people walking, cooking, washing, eating, going to a restaurant, walking down the street. And you can see just how people wash clothes in the 30s in Berlin, you know, what restaurants look like, what people drank beer out of you know or the my favorite was this guy who had a big pipe and a cigar sticking out of the pipe you know it's just you don't get to see stuff like that so as a time traveling device i thought m was absolutely fantastic yeah that's a good point ragnar as a a, a, a visual time capsule of that period of time and i have to bring this up because in that same exact s sequence 
there was another gentleman who clearly had like what we now refer to as the Hitler mustache. So apparently that was a style that wasn't just one person who's infamous in history chose to have a mustache of that type that apparently did exist in, in popularity at that time frame. Yeah, that was the trend. Yeah, Charlie Chaplin. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I, I think the, I, the way people live is definitely clear in this movie. Well, Tom, you definitely picked a, a good movie for us this week. I think everyone seemed to thoroughly enjoy and have a lot of uh, thoughts on the subject matter. I'd like to once again thank Ragnar for taking down this episode and winning. Uh, thanks again for joining us today, Ragnar. Uh, just out of curiosity, what's on the menu at the trolley stop these days? Well, you can come by and get a plate full of pancakes, some chicken and waffles, and uh, the New Orleans classic uh, bread, beans, and rice. I wish I was closer right now because all that sounds really good and I'm starving. <laughs> Thanks again to our notable editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. I'd also like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we discuss Nick's recommendation from 1978, Halloween, which just puts us in perfect time for October. It'll be a fun one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, I just noticed it said trolley shop up here. Oh, it's no. Okay. It's not a stop. <laughs> that would be like a place you go to buy trolley. I <laughs> know. That's what I'm saying. He's a trolley broke. <laughs> I hear that's a thriving industry. <laughs> Growth market. Ragnar's trolleys. Is your streetcar broken? <laughs> Have you always wanted a streetcar? We roll better than the other guys. Tracks not included. Tracks. <laughs> Tracks all covered. Hey, wait. Maybe we got ding, an ad. <laughs>